Hey everyone and welcome to Risky Business, your weekly information security news and current affairs show. My name's Patrick Gray. This week's show is brought to you by Attack IQ and Attack IQ's Jonathan Riber will be joining us in this week's sponsor interview to talk about how companies and their boards are really moving towards outcomes-based security programs. And uh, this is something Attack IQ obviously thinks it can help organizations to deliver uh, by doing attack simulation and control validation, uh, which is actually something CISA has started recommending organizations do, by the way. Uh, also joining us in that interview is Marcus Bartram from Telstra Ventures which is one of Attack IQ's investors. So Marcus is popping in to talk about this outcomes-based guiding principle as it applies to where investor cash is going more generally. So do stick around for that one. It is interesting stuff. But before we get into all of that, it's time for a check of the week's news with Adam Boileau. And Adam, we're going to kick off this week's uh, news discussion by taking a look at a couple of ransomware-related stories. Uh, It really does feel like, and we have said this before... This time it's different, I swear. It really does feel like governments are cottoning on to the idea uh, that ransomware is a real problem. Uh, The first story we're going to talk about here is from Alexander Martin over at The Record who has pointed out that the the majority of the so-called COBRA-like crisis management meetings that happen at the top levels of the UK government, uh, the majority of these are, are now being called in response to ransomware incidents. Yeah, I thought that was quite a surprising stat. I mean, you know, when I first saw it, I thought like, you know, half of cyber relate, but no, it's like half of all crises handled by the UK government is specifically ransomware, which, I mean, yeah, clearly it is a thing that is important, you know, at, at a national level for lots of governments, um, but maybe a little behind there in the UK. I'm not sure whether, you know, whether all of those meetings have, have achieved a whole bunch yet. They do feel, you know, compared to say the progress that the US and uh uh, and Australia have been making lately. Maybe you know it's time to catch up and uh, you know start doing some things about it. Yeah, I mean, uh, by the looks of things, these meetings uh, are similar to our national coordination mechanism here in Australia, where you can bring together different departments and stuff to sort of coordinate a response. But yeah, these meetings are normally called together when there's been something like a terrorist attack. Yeah, yeah, exactly. It's, it is very serious business. Although you know, having the National Health Service you know hacked during a pandemic, I guess that's absolutely worth that kind of you know coordination and serious response. Uh, but yeah, eighteen meetings does seem like quite a lot to have about ransomware at such a high level in government. And you know, you would certainly hope that that degree of focus you know produced some real you know measurable focused outcomes to make things better for you know British targets of ransomware. Yeah, and meanwhile, uh, DHS Secretary Alejandro Mayorkas in the United States has uh, fronted up to a Senate hearing to say, geez, I think it would be pretty bad if our ports got ransomware. I mean, that's reading between the lines. He said that, uh, you know, cyber attacks present a massive threat to port infrastructure. And I would, you know, be very surprised if he wasn't thinking about ransomware when he said that. Yes, obviously we've seen you know disruption to global logistics from ransomware, but you know there are just so many avenues of attack in that infrastructure. I mean, ports are a pretty slow-moving environment from a you know compared to an IT you know things that IT people are used to. You know where you know cranes and and container handling equipment is probably expected to last 20 years it's not you know a thing you patch every three months and throw out and get a new one um and there's so much legacy software and so much integration and so many third-party vendors you know trying to map out you know if you were if you had like a version of bloodhound that you could point at critical infrastructure and it would like map the dependencies and, and avenues for escalation um like doing that process for container logistics or, or shipping logistics, it would be such a mess. Yeah, I mean, plus you, the software is old and trash. 
cash. And you just think about the sort of integrations between the shipping yes. companies, multiple shipping companies, and then government systems like customs computers and whatever. And I'm sure they've done that through a properly engineered API, Adam. It's fine. No, <laughs> no, they didn't. They no, almost certainly didn't, right? So <laughs> so I do feel like there's there's a there's a bit of a realization coming that, oh, okay we probably don't want all of our ports uh, rendered inoperable either by a uh, you know foreign actor who's doing it deliberately or just by a group of criminals uh, who, who think it will be a nice way to earn some cryptocurrency. Yes, and, and I mean, they are, I mean, we've seen examples of that happening already. I mean, obviously there was the NotPetya disruption of, of Mayersk, et cetera, but we've seen, you know, oil shipping in Germany disrupted because the, you know, the oil handling equipment, you know, kind of landside in the in the ports was offline and they had to send boats full of oil other places. You know, it's a, a thing that is already, you know, has already impacted. And, you know, having had some exposure to maritime, you know, IT systems, and uh, you know port systems in so my you're speaking professional from, career. You're speaking from trauma that you have experienced yourself, uh, right? Uh, yeah. Yes, there, yeah, yeah. There is some, there is some such nasty Java in there, and it makes me feel. <laughs> <bad>. <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah, and uh, look, just uh, you know, we uh, over the last couple of weeks, we of course spoke about um, the Australian government's decision to get ASD uh, to target some of these ransomware operators. It's really too soon to say if this has had any effect, but we were just chatting before we hit record, and we haven't really heard anything from BlogXX uh, over the last week or something. Their leak site has gone down, uh, and that may or may not be significant. Basically, yeah, yeah, man, we don't really know whether that's you know technical error whether that's them feeling some heat and shutting down voluntarily or whether that's the asd in there you know rming their stuff and bricking their machines and I hope it's, their I hope it's wallets. That, you know like we were joking that you know worst case for them is they're trying to reinstall their operating systems on their on their you know computers but you know someone's in the uefi just doing the same thing over and over and over i, I mean i do think like some kangaroo memes you know being displayed by your uefi you know where every time you try and turn your machine on uh, and it doesn't boot any further that would you know that would be a convincing message to send. Thank you for the PG version, but uh, Adam was telling me before we recorded he was hoping for a uh, full goatsy display uh, via UF, <laughs> UEFI at, um, at uh, boot up. It's okay, you can say it. You can say it. Um, goatsy isn't a dirty word, funnily enough. It's a horrible image, but it's not a dirty word. <laughs> Um, here's a fun, here's a fun story. Uh, Brian Krebs has written this up. Uh, a researcher managed to find a fault in the Zeppelin ransomware, which would allow them to crack the keys, essentially, and have been going around unlocking people who've been who've been infected by this crew to the point where the crew just got frustrated and basically gave up. And that's some that's some solid work. And you know, we've seen in in the past we've seen researchers, you know, find issues with ransomware crypto, you know, either the implementation or the underlying crypto or whatever it is. Uh, but of course, if you talk about it, then the ransomware crew will change their operation. And and th this particular group, Unit Two Two One B, they had made this uh, information available to the FBI. And then when victims contacted the FBI for advice, they could quietly say, "Well, actually, have a talk to these cats. They can perhaps take care of it for you, uh, and you know, kind of keep it under the radar long enough to really." mess with this particular ransomware crew um this story is also particularly sweet because uh the way that they were doing this was the ransomware crew used a like 512-bit rsa key as the you know per machine key to be able to use to kind of generate the key material uh and so they just straight up factored it like so actual hacked by crypto which is great using a, a pool of machines donated by uh, cloud hosting provider DigitalOcean. uh so you know nice to see everyone working together and actually doing crypto hacking through ransomware operators so that's a that's nice that's a that's a good news story i like that one 
We've got a fun one here from Adam Janowski at The Record, which is that uh, US and Estonian authorities have arrested these two guys over running essentially a Ponzi scheme, but they managed to take in $575 million. <laughs> and I'm, I'm kind of impressed with their, with their marketing skills to have actually made their Ponzi scheme this effective. Uh, they were basically pretending to run a crypto mining operation, but they were just taking people's money and stealing it. And I mean, if you could do that with <laughs> half a billion dollars, like when they get out, Apple should hire them as for their marketing department or something. They're clearly doing something right. <laughs> yes, it's definitely inspired. And um, I did like the so one of the mechanisms they use is they're running this fake mining scheme, or they had some mining capacity, but they were saying that they had like a hundred times more mining capacity than they did. And then when people tried to cash out their share of the mining proceeds that they had kind of paid to invest in. They got hit with all sorts of like, know your customer requirements. We have to upload, you know, 47 different forms of identity. Yeah, I, I love that. When people wanted to withdraw, they're like, no, no, you need to, we need to do KYC. And that shakes out like the people who are a little bit shady to begin with, you lose yes. them immediately, right? Yeah, yeah, and you just get the pocket, the change. I mean, yeah. that's probably a reasonable business model to start with. Um, but then they would, when people did attempt to cash out, they would just buy regular Bitcoin on the market and give it to them. And presumably no one actually looked at the block blockchain to see where the, where the Bitcoin or whatever came from. Um, and yeah, they managed to do this for, for a number of years. And then they had another scam where they were like running a fake bank where they took investment, you know, 25 million, whatever it was, investments to make this online banking, which just straight up didn't exist. Yeah. Uh, so, But I, I mean, mean, so many people are, you know, enriching themselves with scams. And the thing that surprises me is, okay, these guys are probably going to go to jail. Right, but what about all the ones who are doing scams that are kind of legal, right? Because there's so much of that in crypto, <laughs> and it, it it drives me nuts, right? Like a certain venture fund out there, everybody knows who I'm talking about, who've essentially been, you know, running crypto scams. Like, and this is an established, well-known venture fund that's just been ripping people off. Yeah, I mean, I think at this point, like, if you want to be involved in crypto, then part of me thinks maybe you kind of deserve it. Like, no, there's no real value in it, and when you invest money, you're not expecting to make money legitimately. Like you're not creating value or you know investing in the means of production or or something useful like that. You're just straight up hoping that you get in before everybody else. And I feel like the entire crypto ecosystem at this point really is just you know funding North Korean weapons development, facilitating criminals to money launder, and, and two and a half thousand dollar lunches for the former FTX CEO. Uh, now staying on crypto. Uh, look, this is this is news that's been reported widely everywhere, uh, but FTX, which is the collapsed gigantic, uh, you know, crypto derivatives derivatives exchange or whatever, they uh, their liquidators uh, they've appointed a interim CEO who happens to be the guy who I think wound up Enron back in the day, <laughs> and he says this is the worst he's ever seen. Some of the quotes from this guy about the complete lack of, of good record keeping, of control of bank accounts, like it's, it really does look like a, a total disaster show inside there. Like he said, they can't even make a list of everybody who worked there, like who had access to you know, bank accounts or things or even how many bank accounts there were and who had control of them. So like a kind of exactly what you expect from a crypto bro exchange, um, which... No, I mean, know. honestly, I mean, I'm even shocked at how bad it was, right? Where people were having huge expenses approved by emoji in Slack. And, you know, like it's just absolutely no effort went into trying to run this as a proper business, which is fine when you maybe have a few thousand in deposits, but this was a multi-billion dollar company. What were their investors doing? That's what I want to know. <laughs> I, I don't know. I guess they were just counting counting all the imaginary numbers going up. Yeah, but uh, based on what? They didn't have accounting. Like, <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, how are you, you going to count your imaginary dollars if there's no 
if there's no accounting to to show that they exist. It's just the whole thing is really weird. And meanwhile, you know, there was that whole bunch of um, uh, cryptocurrency that was stolen from the exchange as it collapsed. And last I saw, people are sort of chasing it around the Ethereum blockchain at the moment as the as the person who pinched it is trying to wash it. Yeah, I think they said now that maybe it's up to something like a billion dollars worth of stuff appears missing to the extent they can tell what's meant to be there, which, you know, that's a lot of money to, to go out the door. Uh, I did also note that the the, the, the liquidator uh, said that the audit firm they had retained, uh, who he had never heard of, uh, does at least claim that they are the first uh, public accountants to have an office in the metaverse. So there you go. Uniquely qualified to audit made-up money. <laughs> uh, now, I, I stumbled across this research. I think I stumbled across this on the legacy social media site, uh, Twitter. It is a post from a what I'm guessing is a company called Binali. Uh, and what they've done is they've examined uh, UEFI, common UEFI firmware from major manufacturers and taken a look at what versions of stuff like OpenSSL uh, they use in their UEFI and they have found that they're using like old vulnerable versions of OpenSSL. My question to you, Adam, is how much of an issue is that if your UEFI is running old and exploitable OpenSSL? Um, so the bugs that we've had in OpenSSL over the years generally haven't been too bad. Um, you know, there's been some clangers, that's for sure. Some of the bugs in OpenSSL we have seen, you know, like certificate validation ones, which in the context of the of the UFI, where perhaps you're trying to check signatures on firmware, or you know, it's UFI that has network connectivity and is trying to validate something. You know, there could be some impact. The remote code exec bugs we saw in OpenSSL just recently. You know, obviously the no UFI has that newer version of open SSL certainly that seems to be what their research says um but the thing that worries me i guess uh, about this is it really is indicative of you know the the complex very long very slow moving supply chain problems in embedded software yeah uh, you know not not just ufi i mean any embedded systems iot devices etc and you know we are getting better at understanding software composition right this this uh, group finale seems to have some you know mechanisms for doing binary fingerprinting of of components and stuff in embedded firmware uh, and this is really interesting research to then actually have some numbers about how old some of these versions of of open ssl are and you know in some cases they're you know six ten years old versions of, of open ssl which you know go down through the supply chain. Like one of the things they identified was um, uh, an, an Infineon component, which is one of the underlying vendors for the sorts of you know chips that you end up running the UFI. Um, you know, an ancient, ancient version of, of OpenSSL from the dawn of time, like 2014. And that, that kind of indicates the complexity of these uh, of these systems, you know, in terms of their makeup. But, you know, obviously OpenSSL is not the only thing in there. There's all sorts of stuff in there. And, you know, getting this stuff fixed in reasonable time is very difficult. And these are major vendors too. Right? We're talking like HP and Lenovo um, and Dell, you know, having ancient versions of the stuff in there, you know, in the the thing that enforces a whole bunch of trust anchor things and crypto code in there is you know, very much for that purpose. Well, I mean, that, so, that's really what I was wondering about. Like is, you know, are these UEFI firmware things, are they using OpenSSL, OpenSSL to do things like code validation? I mean, obviously they'd be using them for validating network connections if they're directly bouncing up, but do they do that? Or, you know, I just don't know enough about UEFI to um, uh, to, to, to know. That's what I was asking. Yes, and this is one of the challenges that you'd have to go and dig through each individual manufacturer's firmware to understand the use case. And of course, we're dealing here without source code. Uh, you know, you have to do that from binary analysis 
and understanding the interaction with underlying hardware. Like this is really hard to do. And really the, only the manufacturers are well placed to triage and understand what the impact could be in the context of their particular firmware. Uh, so it's very hard for the rest of us to do unless you're kind of at Google scale where you can dictate what firmware is on your embedded systems uh, and yeah. kind of control it and have a hand in the in the building of it for consumers and for businesses that just buy off-the-shelf hardware. Like they're really not very well equipped to reason about that and, and we have to rely on the vendors to do a good job, which clearly they don't. Yeah, and I mean there's no way to really have good inspectability into what's in your UFI, you know. I mean, you can, you can tell composition, and that's where this, you know, like software bill of materials idea is useful if you know what's in there, but then understanding the applicability of any individual bug and whether that means you have to stop and drop and, and patch your entire yeah, fleet but I mean, immediately if you're given an or whether it's a If you're given an S-bomb, you have to rely on it actually being accurate as well. Well, there is that this, as well. Right? So yes. what I meant by inspectability is there's not really a, an easy way for people. It's not like you run Nessus and you're going to get a list of CVEs that are present in your UEFI. I don't think, at least. No, not not yet. Uh, obviously, there's a bunch of people working on binary analysis tooling and things to try and make that process more flexible. But that's also a thing we've been trying to do for you know probably fifteen twenty years as an industry, and we're yeah. still struggling at it. So yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, another one from Alexander Martin at the record: the EU is kicking in two point four billion euros uh, between twenty twenty three and twenty twenty seven to build a proper like internet satellite constellation they seem in a bit of a rush to do this uh, at the moment adam <laughs> g i wonder why i wonder why yes i mean obviously starlink has proven its utility in the in the conflict in ukraine and you know amazon's kuiper satellite system is going to be doing similar things the european union has a history of building you know their own networks and their own systems you know say uh, the galileo positioning system so that they're not reliant on uh, you know, on the United States um, and have some independence. And obviously, you know, looking at the importance of Starlink and global comms and the vulnerability of undersea cables, you know, with pipelines blowing up undersea lately, you know, there is a renewed focus on infrastructure availability and having something that would at least keep you know, a future 5G connected, you know, IoT, everything well, at least give you, world at least functional. Give you something, right? And, and, and a constellation is going to mean that you will have just enough data availability if someone does try to use submarines to cut off your cables or whatever. And, you know, your military is going to be able to use this and you don't have to worry about some egomaniacal head in America turning everything off, right? Yes, like so, Exactly. So I think yeah. it's just amazing how quickly countries have realized that this is an important capability that they need to have it needs to it needs to be developed it needs to be launched there's no question yes and i think i think the interesting thing will be whether or not they end up having to pay you know amazon or spacex to launch it for them whether they can get their you know ariane 6 or whatever it is the next you know, next launcher uh, for isa you know, in a state where they actually go to space with it at a reasonable cost or whether it ends up being cheaper than paying spacex to shove it on top of a of a starship and and launch it to space for three bucks. Thomas Brewster at Forbes looks staying on a on a related topic. He's got a story up about uh, uh, the efforts of Ukrainian engineers to bring back bring back internet access uh, into Kherson after it, you know after the Russians uh, were pushed out by Ukrainian forces. 
Yes, obviously restoring communications uh, and getting civilian, some you know normality back into civilian life is a thing that uh, you know is important for them. We've seen a number of great stories about Ukrainian you know telecommunications engineers out on the front lines working on mobile sites, working on fixed line infrastructure, uh, and so here in in Kherson, you know having to go through the you know the ruins of the you know the data center of the mobile operators, try and figure out there's any gear left, try and avoid the landmines, you know, try and avoid booby traps. You know that's a hell of a, a, a day on the job, and you know my hat is very much off to you know well my hat's always off to telco engineers in the first place because it's a miserable <laughs> life but having to do that in a war zone you know configuring a you know a 4g network in the middle of a war zone is not a lot of fun i am sure and you know that's just that's really important work and they've got you know generator powered mobile cells you know and people are running up and, and charging their phones you know off usb ports connected to the generators that are operating the cell sites and you know it's opening up you know, uh, a whole bunch of access to friends and family and, and the wider world for those people. So, yeah, it's a, a good reminder how important some of the work that we do is. And, yeah, you know, this is a process that's been made a lot easier thanks to uh, Starlink in this case, right? So it just goes to show that it is very important infrastructure. And, um, geez, you know, things are pretty rough in Kherson at the moment, you know, no power. I think water is a challenge as well. And, um, you know, just the fact, though, that they've got public charging points where people can at least send messages to loved ones and things like that, like that's important. But it's going to yeah, be a long really winter for a bunch of people in Ukraine, you Oof. know? And, yeah, it certainly is. And when you see people interviewed and they say... We don't have water, we don't have heat, but we don't have Russians. <laughs> and you think, you know, you think good for you, but it's going to be very tough over there. And, uh, you yeah, know, our thoughts, really our thoughts uh, for all people affected uh, by that uh, by that conflict, um, as always. Now, what do we got here? Yeah, um, Senate, <laughs> Senate Democrats have written a letter to the uh, FTC in the United States urging it to look into whether or not Twitter is living up to its obligations under its FTC consent decree, uh, paying particular attention to the security uh, of the information it holds on its users. I would really hope that the FTC takes them up on this and, and gets in there because when you see the CISO uh, resign very quickly after a new owner takes control of a company and, um, you know, and fire a bunch of people, you really do wonder... If, and, and you've heard stories about, uh, you know, lawyers urging people at Twitter to get legal advice on whether or not they're going to wind up with things like FTC problems. I, I would just think there's probably something to this and, and it would make me feel better as a Twitter user, even though I'm not an American. It would make me feel better if I knew that the FTC was going in there to check on their controls. Yes, I don't think we're particularly surprised to see this development. I mean, Twitter has just been such a lot of chaos. I mean, this coming on the back of uh, of the Mudge, you know, uh, riding his whistleblowing thing and that getting a bunch of traction uh, in, in the US government as well. So, you know, not surprised. I also, like you, hope the FTC goes and, and takes them up. I mean, some of the things Mudge had to say about, you know, the ability of Twitter to deal with deleting data. You know, we've seen a lot of people advocating, you know, going around deleting your DM histories and those kinds of things. Um and you know whether or not that actually results in data being deleted like that's a question that you know twitter users probably ought to have a reasonable answer for well i think um, it, i think you know it's still worth deleting your dms if if you've got ones you don't want to be seen because at least if your account gets taken over they won't be available to the attacker right that's but true, i yes. think really the 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 issue is that like once you hit de delete Maybe there's some sort of machine learning model somewhere which has yes. those DMs or whatever, and like yeah. not every system is is set up to correctly remove the the data. 
Yeah, yeah, exactly. And you never know how long backups last or how long, you know. See, as you the, say, the like, existing Twitter trash fire didn't bother me so much. I just worry that now that they've cut their staff by like two thirds, like who's left to to yes. make sure to make sure that, like, if there's exfil happening right now, are they equipped to even observe it? And probably not. I mean, Mudge said what there was like, something like twenty security incidents in twenty twenty, and if they were dealing with twenty a year under normal circumstances. You know, obviously there's going to be more opportunity for things to go wrong with the speed of change and the lack of staff and detection and response are not going to be things that are, are easy to do or even happening at all at this point. So you know, there is a lot of reason for the FTC uh, to get in there, especially on the back of the you know, of Twitter's security history and the existing you know consent decree. It's, it's kind of what it's for. Yeah, exactly, right? And, and we've actually linked through too to a NBC News story written by Kevin Collier and uh, Laura Kolodny. Just talking about that um, deletion issue, what's reassuring is that they did actually find a few ex-Twitter staff who spoke on a condition of anonymity who said that, like, if you do delete DMs, somewhere between a few days and a few weeks later, they should be gone, right? So that is a little bit reassuring. Yeah, that, that is a little bit reassuring. But, uh, you know, as you say, right, this, the idea of a you know, machine model, machine learning model trained on DMs or whatever other things that are in there, uh, you know, Mudge did highlight the fact that Twitter didn't have a great idea of where all its data was. Uh, but, yeah, that's good Good to hear they found some, uh, you know, actual engineers to say probably if you delete it from both ends, if all parties delete it. Uh, but then, of course, there's the challenge that, uh, you know, deleting DMs is like fiddly. You have to do a lot of clicking. Uh, and yeah, so there's, there's no a lot delete of, all button because that would be too easy, wouldn't it? Yeah, and then you know, there's lots of dodgy bits of software that people are downloading to run and, and giving it permissions to use their Twitter account. So, like maybe net overall, it's risky trying to delete your messages if you start, you know, doing it some way other than by hand. Uh, so, yeah, it's such a mess. And look, you know, Mastodon is going great guns. I think I've got like 4,000 or 4,200 followers already have come over mostly from Twitter, right, onto uh, Mastodon. And I'm finding that the InfoSec discussion over there is actually pretty good. But of course, we also spoke about that awful bug last week, the web bug where you could basically trick a Mastodon user's uh, browser into shitting out a password into a domain of your choice, <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, which is which is not the best. Um, and we got another one here, which was just a, a misconfiguration, which actually applied to InfoSec Exchange, which is the you know one most security people are on. A researcher named Lenin Alevsky uh, discovered that, yeah, InfoSec Exchange was allowing rights to like its S3 bucket storage for things like profile <laughs> pics, which meant really, if you wanted to, if someone had a notice, some bad person had a notice could have replaced everyone's profile picture with uh with dicks, really if they if they wanted to do that um thankfully which, they, which would have been hilarious it would have been funny <laughs> um also sister jen who is you know uh, jen easterly on twitter the sister jen account on infosec exchange turned out to not have been <laughs> jen easterly <laughs> yeah. which was quite funny um but you know you're going to get these sort of issues i mean you know good ending here which is and and jerry bell running infosec exchange knows what he's doing still missed it configuration problem it happens and he's like yeah whoops um that's not supposed to be set to right and um change the config <laughs> and it's all sorted now but we are going to see this sort of stuff with mastodon yeah yeah exactly like it's still a complicated service to run and you know there's a lot of people maybe standing up new mastodon instances that are that are new to adminning it certainly everybody involved in running mastodon instances is new to scaling like this and so much change and yeah of course there's going to be mistakes that happen uh, you know when there's such a pace of change and such a desire to grow and also to you know make it welcoming and 
you know, good availability, easy for new users. You know, there's lots of stuff going on. And one of the things I've noticed uh, around the, the Mastodon, around especially Infosec Exchange, is, you know, there's quite a lot more positive energy. I mean, people are in, enjoying a place that isn't Twitter and are connecting. And, you know, the thing with Gen, right, everyone is, is pretty trusting at the moment uh, and making, you know, finding their old friends. There's not really an easy way to validate who's who, you know, unless people have anchored it back to other identities that you trust in Twitter or Facebook. Well, you could do else. like a domain-based validation. So you and I could have like risky.biz validated. Yes. Uh, you know, but I mean, like everyone's like, when are you going to do it? I'm like, come on, you know, it's me. It's fine. Like, <laughs> yeah, you know, yeah, you know? Exactly right. That's uh, that's good enough for us. Because I was never verified um, on Twitter. I couldn't be bothered, no. you know, like who cares? Yeah. <laughs> but yeah, I, I do feel for people like Jerry and, and other, you know, I know a few other Mastodon instant admins, you know, they've all been having a hell of a month. So yeah, yeah. Toss, a, toss a coin to your, you know, to your Mastodon admin. Uh, now, the White House, Adam, is expected to issue an executive order on uh, about spyware, right? Stuff like NSO Group uh, stuff. And if you look at this document I've got here, uh, linked through to from CyberScoop, it's a document prepared by the Department of Commerce uh, and also the Department of State, looking at certain initiatives that are underway to try to rein this stuff in. Looks pretty good, I got to say. Like, and, and it looks sensible. Looks like the sort of um, initiatives that aren't actually going to crush the industry, but will just punish bad actors. Uh, what, what did you make of this? Did you actually read the the letter here? Yes, yeah, I had to read through it, and you know, I, there is obviously a lot of balance to be struck here between you know there are legitimate uses for this kind of software you know, in the law enforcement context, for example, where as mobile phones get more complicated, as the amount of work you have to put into building functional spyware, you know, kind of drives the prices up and gets kind of past the point where, you know, where you need a big organization with a lot of resources to develop effective, useful, maintainable spyware. You, you, know, you can see that there is a legit market for it in certain, in certain cases and trying to balance the, level of abuse possible trying to in include things like you know a human rights test or, or some you know kind of uh, criteria under which law enforcement agencies or other agencies you know that are eligible to use this stuff could purchase it and under what circumstances you know that's a, a thing that we've been asking for clarity about for for quite a long time and it doesn't have to be perfect right now um, but at least having some standards to set you know about who those organizations well, I, from... I think this whole thing's got a lot easier because, you know, when the first go around with this years ago with Vasana arrangement tools, right, like was just terrible. Yes. But now that it's a much bigger business, as you say, like now that the uh, people offering this sort of stuff are big companies, like regulating that is easier. Yes, it's certainly easier when you're not fighting with, you know, a thousand ordinary vuln researchers that just yeah. want to make your life difficult because, you know, the Vassanar was, you know, uh, not well thought through in terms of how it would apply. Whereas, you know, regulating the, you know, few dozen companies that are selling commercial spyware, you know, and if they want to sell it to government entities, then you've got leverage over them. Whereas, yeah, ordinary volume researchers, you know, that was always going to be problematic and, and uh, a thing that people would work around or make, you know, make ineffective just for, for the sake of it. Whereas... Yeah. You know, when we're dealing with businesses, there is a degree of rationality that you know hackers and vulnerable researchers well, don't I think, necessarily I think the have thing to that, apply. The thing that comes through here is that if they spot a bad actor, they're going to be able to move against them a bit quicker. You know, yes. and that yeah. that makes a lot of sense, right? So, and that doesn't just mean they won't buy from them. NSO Group has had all sorts of drama, uh, thanks to the efforts of the U.S. government, basically putting them on an entities list, right? So that 
has not been a positive thing uh, for them. So let's see how that goes. Now, staying on a sort of somewhat related topic, we've got a story here from Wired, written by Lorenzo Franceschi Beccarai, and it's about Corellium. Now, for those who aren't familiar, Corellium makes a uh, iOS sort of emulation platform that's very popular with uh, vulnerability researchers and exploit developers. It has other uses, but that is more or less its primary use case. And of course, Corellium was sued by Apple for copyright infringement. Uh, Apple lost. Basically, Apple did not like Corellium at all and uh, you know tried to put them out of business and it didn't go their way. And one of the central allegations that Apple made about Corellium is that they were you know doing business with awful people and, and whatnot. Now, this is something that the courts absolutely did not establish when they found in, in favor of Corellium. Anyway, Lorenzo has written a story here for Wired where he's managed to get uh, his hands on what looks to be a 500 plus page uh, document, which is essentially Apple's dirt file uh, on Corellium. And let me let me read the the intro here. Corellium, a cybersecurity startup that sells phone virtualization software for catching security bugs, offered or sold its tools to controversial government spyware and hacking toolmakers in Israel, the United Arab Emirates, and Russia, and to a cybersecurity firm with potential ties to the Chinese government, according to a leaked document, blah, 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 blah. Now, offered or sold is doing a lot of heavy lifting uh, in that intro because the the story claims that um, NSO Group and uh, Dark Matter obtained a trial of Corellium software. That's true. Uh, they did, but they they weren't offered a license. I think Dark Matter reached out for a quote. Uh, they, they received a quote and... You know, I don't know if they didn't action on the quote, but they, they, they wouldn't have got a license. Let's just put it that way. And um, that's just how it works with sales, right? So with Risky Biz, sometimes a, a vendor that we don't want to do business with will write into sales. Sales will return a rate card with a price list on it. And then when it comes time to booking, I might say to sales, yeah, we don't really want to do business with them. Okay. So the idea that a couple of undesirables might have got their hands on some trial software, I don't, I, don't, I don't find that particularly controversial. The fact that uh, Cellbrite and Elcomsoft, uh, you know, a Russian and an Israeli company, the fact that they're customers is not at all controversial. Like I would be surprised if they weren't customers of Corellium. And the Chinese, the, you know, the company with potential, potential ties as well, come on, uh, potential ties to the Chinese government, you know, it was a group of jailbreakers, uh, as I understand it, who licensed Corellium to deliver a training seminar in Singapore, right? So it was the, the cloud service, I believe. And then uh, uh, Corellium say that they terminated that license uh, due to terms of service violations. So... I don't. I feel like this story is trying to give an impression that Corellium is a bad faith company doing business with shady people. When even the U.S. courts and a judge in their trial against Apple said that they clearly had a functioning vetting process that wasn't perfect, but that they were trying and it was a functional vetting process. So I don't really understand the the, the point of this, other than it's trying to make Corellium look bad by doing some stretching. You know what I mean? Yeah, yes. I mean, on on first read of the piece, you you come away. Well, you know, I read it you know, when we were preparing for the for the conversation today, uh, and you know, the impression you get is is pretty negative. And then you know, talking to you before we recorded, and when you explained, you know, your insights uh, to you know some of the details, you know, the specific details around this, uh, it does paint a different picture than what appears to be actually the case. So, Substantially, right? There's a big gulf between what Lorenzo is claiming here and what Corellium say is the case. And the funny thing is everything Corellium said 
is compatible with this story as well, right? But it's just the way that the story's been written and cast. I don't know, man. It it, it just doesn't sit well for me. Like Corellium, I know the people who run Corellium not well or anything, you know, but I do know them. I, I chat to Chris Wade every now and then. I did chat to him about this. He actually he actually said something funny, which is um, wait till Lorenzo finds out that the NSA gives Gidra away for free. <laughs> you know, but, you know, it's not like I'm in business with them or anything. In fact, at one point, Chris said, hey, we should sponsor Risky Business. And I said, no, I don't want you to because I would like to remain uh, impartial when it comes to talking about stuff to do with you because I'm sure you're going to pop up in the news again one day and, <laughs> you know, <laughs> and here we are. But, you know, this whole thing just doesn't sit entirely right with me because I feel like it, it, it gives people an impression that isn't entirely accurate. Yeah, I mean, that, that certainly seems to be the case. And there is often a desire, you know, we, we all get, I guess, a bit disturbed by the effectiveness of the surveillance world. And, and, you know, we feel vulnerable when we know people are sitting on zero days for our phones and finding those kinds of bugs and can use them against us. And it is very easy to paint all of the people who work in, you know, all of the companies that operate in this particular space as being, like, it fits a narrative for them to all be evil. Um, but then, you know, when you think about, you know, for example, Azimuth, selling stuff to the FBI to break into the San Bernardino killer's phone. That is kind of what the software can be used for in a positive way. Uh, and, you know, spinning that narrative constantly negative is hard. There's still just some people who think that all of this work and everything in the tool chain is bad, you know, yeah. and it's just, uh, and that ethical operators don't really exist and blah, blah, blah. So, you know, I don't know. I mean, like, who knows? Maybe Corellium, maybe a few bad ones slipped in. But, like, not NSO, not Dark Matter. Like, they're not dumb. You know what I mean? Like, they're just not <laughs> stupid people who are going to torpedo their reputations. And keep in mind, you know, a lot of the organisations they do business with probably would not appreciate them being in bed with those sort of people. So, like, it would cut against their interests anyway. The whole thing's weird. Anyway, we've we've had that conversation now. Let's, uh, let's move on. Uh, Favourite lull of the last couple of weeks. I think, uh, yeah, Catalan wrote this one up uh, uh, last week which is the, that an Iranian like APT crew hacked into a US government agency and dropped crypto miners and it looks like they were just solely trying to make some coin. <laughs> yeah, so we've seen you know, some nexus between uh, Iranian state actors and, and criminals with the data stolen you know, from their day job state hacking, you know, turning up on, on, on darknet forums or whatever else for sale. So, you know, I imagine the paying conditions are not super great. So making a few extra bucks on the side, uh, you know, probably makes, makes some sense for them. Uh, I do wonder if it's a case of, you know, they got told, you know, go target American government infrastructure, they bust into everything they can. And then they just triage and like, this, this place is useless. We're not going to get any, you know, Intel value out of this. Well, at least we can make some bucks. You know, run up a run up XM rig on their domain controller. Oh. <laughs> you know, we'll make a couple of bucks. It'll pay for you know the coffee fund or <laughs> whatever for the office. Oh dear. Yeah, they it need to up, upgrade the couch in the break room or something. Yeah, you know? yeah, exactly. Yeah, pay for. Which is funny actually because Insomnia, your company, uh, which is now part of CyberCX, uh, you mined some Bitcoin on your password cracking rig back in the day. <laughs> I did, yes. And then I think the the last, not the big boom that ended about a year ago, but the boom before that, you sold them and didn't you use that to refit your office? Yes, yeah, we did. That's exactly, that's exactly it. I'd mined a bunch in like, I don't know, 2000. Nine or yeah, eight, I think you had like, like what four? Long, I think long... it was like something like four Bitcoin or something, right? Yeah, it was like four. It wasn't a lot. It was four yeah. Bitcoin or so. But I sold it at, at the first, like on the day of the first peak, uh, and yeah, it was enough to pay for our office refurb in Auckland when we uh, 
we took over the, the second half of the building that we were in. The other people moved out and we expanded our office and yeah, paid for the paid for the refit. I've friends. been to those offices. Nice digs. <laughs> Very nice digs. Uh, Jonathan Grieg, another one from him over at uh, The Record. We spoke about this in the past, which is that the Indian government had banned the VLC player. And we wondered if you know what was behind that. Um, they have now allowed they they are now allowing their people uh, to use VLC to to play media again. Yeah, apparently the uh, VLC devs uh, had a meeting with the relevant part of the Indian government, uh, and they agreed that uh, you know VLC could be allowed back in. There's, you know, we still haven't seen a concrete reason of exactly why it happened. You know why they ended up getting getting put on the block list. Uh, there's some speculation that there was a you know a campaign that was using like DLL sideloading in VLC, so it would drop legit VLC and then like sideload the DLL to get past you know some kind of filtering or AV or whatever else. Um, but the vulnerable version of vlc for that is like 10 years old so, yeah, right. uh, yeah i mean i don't think there was any sense in this whole process and i imagine the vlc devs must have been slapping their forehead a bit but all's well that ends well and now uh, indians can once again download vlc that's right uh bad bug affecting aws app sync this is a shocker oh, actually and i'm so good and I'm, I'm really surprised this one's flown under the radar i learned about it from jonathan greeks right up at the record but you woof Yes, woof, woof indeed. And actually found by a company called Datatalk, so woof, very appropriate. Um, so this bug just made me, I, This is, of all of the things in this week's news list, this is the one I pasted into work chat. Uh, yeah. Because what a bug. So this is um, a cross-account you know, kind of data or, or API call access between Amazon accounts. So where yeah. you could, um, using one particular Amazon service called AppSync, uh, you could cause the like Amazon AppSync thing to uh, assume role to impersonate another uh, identity context into somebody else's account. And normally is, there would be I mean, some... that's about as bad as it gets. How is this not it, bigger it is. news? You know? it, it, honestly, it really is. Uh, and the mechanism by which this worked is normally you would, when you were setting up the, the mechanisms for this AppSync service, which would make like API calls on your behalf of uh, into uh, other resources that you controlled. Normally it would validate that you were calling into the same account. They managed to bypass this validation by, wait for it, wait for it. So you would specify the role, like the, the role you want to uh, assume access as in a you know JSON document. They... And the check for the same account was case sensitive in the like name of the parameter. And so they just mixed case it, which in our office we call sponge bobbing. Um, you just sponge bobbed the account you wanted to go to. And of course, the thing that checked it was case sensitive, but the thing that used it wasn't. And so at that point, you can just make API calls into other people's AWS accounts <laughs> if they are kind of set up to use this app sync service, which. I mean, other than it having no prerequisites, that's about as bad as Amazon bugs get. Like, that's really bad. No, and no, it it's be... just, and, and it's what's really amazing about it is it's like something simple like this that's just been there for God knows how long. And you just think, oh my God, imagine if someone bad had it. You know, this is proper God mode stuff, you know? It really is, yes. And Amazon uh, did go through the logs and say there's no evidence that anyone other than the person who found this um, at Datadog had used it. Uh, and they'd only done it on their own accounts, obviously, because being responsible security researchers. But this is the sort of bug that, you know, if you were an attacker, sophisticated attacker, and you had one of these, like, it, yeah, it would be God mode. And it, it like... I pasted in work chat and everyone, you know, got very excited. <laughs> and, uh, you know, because, you know, sponge bobbing, uh, dealing with case sensitivity and, you know, in JSON documents or whatever else. I mean, that was the root cause of uh, that auth bypass bug we had in auth zero. Yeah. 
you know, validating JWT tokens with a case-sensitive algorithm none. So, I mean, I'd describe <laughs> this as the sort of bug that makes you bounce up and down in your chair a little bit. Yes, um, yeah, this is, this is a bouncer, yeah. And also, uh, always a great reminder, you know, for, for my team, you know, case-sensitive is a thing we have to test for now. Like, and it's not a thing that we probably would have prioritised testing five, ten years ago. Yeah. Because it, it you know, we don't... Ten years ago, we didn't make systems out of so many different software stacks, like microservices and and things hitting forty seven different layers of proxy on their way to where they're going. You know that wasn't a thing we necessarily expected. And these kinds of bugs are the result of that. You know that sort of architectural change. Yeah, a big big shout out to to the Amazon security team for actually managing to go back through what one can only assume was a gargantuan volume of logs to actually (laughs) see if anyone exploited this. I imagine that was a hell of an undertaking. Uh, Even to be in a position to do that is um, impressive. So well done to you. And closing the news, Adam, uh, we're going to be talking about a bug uh, discovered by Jamie McClymont, who I believe is uh, your colleague, and uh, a co-researcher named Emily Trow. This is a remote code ex- execution in Tailscale, which is a, a VPN solution uh, built on top of WireGuard that's pretty common amongst nerds. Like it's sort of the new you know, Hamachi or you know those of you who remember you know, building overlay networks back in the day to play games. Uh, Tailscale is a, a, a mechanism for building pretty cool VPNs uh, and you know, quite widely deployed. And uh, yeah, Jamie and uh, Emily were looking at it, uh, ended up bug chaining, and the, the blog post is worth a read because the bug chain is so amazing, uh, essentially a um, DNS rebinding against a local service, uh, part of the tail scale implementation on Windows, all the way through to remote code exec, uh, and you know, defeated all of the various controls that were in their way and all the things they stumbled across, uh, and like a hell of a bug, beautiful thing. Uh, and then the response from the tail scale dev team was also really heartening. Uh, they uh, fixed the bug very very rapidly uh, apparently the most of the tailscale dev team was on a train to seattle at the time and, and just went through fixed the bugs got it patched pushed forward the disclosure so we actually jamie uh, and emily had to rush to get the blog published in time uh, and yeah it was just a great story um and uh, a reminder that if you do run tailscale best apply the patch it's uh, not the usual experience that the vendor is rushing the researchers on uh, on disclosure. So that is, uh, as you say, heartening. Adam, that is it for this week's news. Uh, great to chat to you as always, and we'll do it all again next week. Yeah, thanks so much, Pat. See you then. That was Adam Boileau there with a look at the week's security news. Joining me now are this week's sponsor guests, uh, Jonathan Ryber from Attack IQ and uh, one of Attack IQ's investors, Marcus Bartram from Telstra Ventures. And the topic is outcomes-based security. CISA recently started recommending that organisations take steps to validate their controls and to do that in sort of a, a, a rolling way. And uh, technology like Attack IQs uh, is a way to do that. And when you think about it, making sure your controls are actually working, you know, it's not really a crazy idea. So both Jonathan and Marcus say the push towards more attack simulation and validation is part of a broader trend towards outcomes-based security. People are buying stuff because it delivers measurable security outcomes these days, not just because it's cool and shiny. Here's Jonathan Ryber to kick this off. I think there's an interesting confluence going on. Cybersecurity has reached a kind of inflection point, I think, which is after more than a decade of significant investment and a lot of success for technologies that have entered the market and transformed our approach to cybersecurity, we're beginning to see cybersecurity move from a kind of cool, 
uh, fun tech out there requirement that's like mostly populated by nerds moving into a mainstream approach that says, look, it actually is just like any other area of human endeavor. And you have to train and test and achieve an element of readiness. You wouldn't ask the French football team or any or the Australian soccer team or football team to go on a pitch and defeat Macy without training. Uh, against him. Lionel Macy would run circles around you. You wouldn't ask the Navy to, to defeat a peer adversary without exercising. And that's essentially what, we're, what we've been doing in cybersecurity. And the result is that things break down and don't work. So I love that CIS is doing this. I think that they're saying, look, you got to get ready. Well, I mean, let me just let me just say one thing there, which is Lionel Messi is going to run rings around everybody, no matter how much training they've had, because he's essentially a god who walks among us. But um, yeah, no, I, I certainly see what you're saying about the maturation of the field. I do feel like with some challenging economic conditions bearing down upon us, we could see some consolidation. I think people are going to stop buying stuff because it's cool. And they're going to buy stuff because it's either essential or saves them money. I think we're on the cusp of that era. I think there's probably an opportunity for you there, actually, considering your whole business is predicated on, on yeah. you know, determining whether a control is effective or not, right? Like, I mean, yeah. I, I imagine this is how you're pitching it, uh, given the change in market conditions. Well, we've, you know, I want to hear from Marcus because he's, he's like, he's a lot smarter than me, but... We, we've got we have two major research findings in the last quarter that I think are, are very important. The first is we did a longitudinal study of customers that use our cloud platform, and we measured EDR performance, uh, endpoint detection response performance within our cloud environment. We've got a whole bunch of on-prem, and we don't see what they do, right? There's massive customers. But um, we found that EDRs only perform at 39% effectiveness against this top seven techniques. And we pick, we pick these techniques because they... Or they occur in the real world. EDRs block them constantly in the lab environment, and they have significant impact when they do happen in a real world environment. So we're like, so these things are being blocked, and yet when you when they when they operate against a customer in a customer environment, customers aren't stopping them. The question became why? Well, it's they're not. In some cases, we don't actually know why because we're not that in deep in our customers' platforms. We have to find out over time and ask them what it is, why they think these things aren't happening. But in some cases, folks don't even turn things on. They install them one time and they hope that they work. And then someone else comes in, they forget to sign off on a, on a contract of some sort or they leave their job. And then these things just stop working. It's just like, it's just like uh, a carrier strike group at sea. If you're not trying to fix it, it's not going to work. So that's like, that was one of the findings. The second was the customers are saving millions and millions of dollars and finding efficiency in staff, in staff and in performance and decreasing the cost of breaches by doing testing to elevate the performance of the money that they're already spending. So do you have any actual numbers on, you know, dollar savings that people may have made by doing tool consolidation based on control validation exercises? So we had these five enterprise customers, big, big, big customers um, with revenue in the billions that, that have been using the platform to discover efficiencies. And they found just below about a million dollars in terms of tool consolidation. So they're discovering redundancies in controls and they're able to cut some element of that redundancy to save themselves quite a bit of money. Yeah, well, I think everybody is going to be going for ROI. Essentials and ROI is going to be the name of the game I don't, I, you know, it's always been something I've told the little itty bitty babby startups, which is no one buys something because it's cool. They buy it because they need it. They buy it because it is aspirin for their headache. They buy it because they have to. Um, but I think that's 
the truth in that is actually going to become more substantial uh, over the next couple of years. So joining us also is Marcus Bartram from uh, Tulsa Ventures, which is a, a an Attack IQ uh, investor. Marcus, um, you know, I, it's great to actually have a tech investor uh, who does cybersecurity investments on the show because this isn't, you know, you're not our usual type of guest. And I'm, but I'm, I'm, I'm curious to know what your feelings are on the overall direction of the cybersecurity market on which types of cybersecurity companies are going to continue to attract funding. I, I, I just, I'm really curious to get your sense of the lay of the land at the moment. I think there's a, a few things that are going on that are interesting. Uh, firstly, probably to Jonathan's point, the conversations I have with CISOs across the industry kind of drive to this idea of an outcomes outcomes-based purchase when they're looking at new technology. Um, so they're very they're less interested, and I think they've been less interested for a while in things that give them a score or give them work to do and create sort of cottage industries of people inside their organizations to kind of run these tool sets, but they're trying to drive to an outcome. And, you know, that's a really, that's a, that's a shift a little from what we were seeing, I think five years ago or even longer where, where it was like, here's some tooling now go train a, a team of 20 people on how to use it. Right. Like that was kind of the approach. Exactly, because budgets are expanding, the relevance of the CISO in the organization was grew um, significantly over the last decade, um, and boards and companies began to appreciate the problem and the risk that they faced, so they're prepared to invest in all sorts of things to try and figure out what's the right tooling to solve the problems that they have. Um, it, one of the reasons we invested in Attack IQ was we, so prior to that, we had invested in a bunch of really interesting companies that were detecting detecting bad guys, detecting threats. But Attack IQ came at the security uh, problem orthogonally to that because it was thinking about security controls. And, you know, we've been invested with the company for um, five years, I think. And uh, it what we sort of believed and still believe is that ultimately this is like an industrial automation control problem. Um, if you're a security guy and you're, tr you're basically trying to run a control environment, you need to be able to detect the state of the control, understand when it shifts, and then do something to address it and have that feedback mechanism continuously running in your business. So there's other industries that have solved this problem at scale and have for a very long time, but it's not very well solved in the security industry. So where's the world headed to? I think there's definitely uh, some resiliency in the cyber industry on the budget side, but I think that's going to shift if the economic environment continues to deteriorate. So they're going to try and hold budget. They're going to reprioritize where they're spending. Um, and... You know, they're going to be looking to get rid of the vitamins and keep buying the pills. Um, so the things that will deliver outcomes and will deliver against real problems. So that's one of the lenses we try to think about as we look at new investment opportunities. Um, counter to that, though, is the IT environment continually shifts. 
And every time the IT environment and the infrastructure um, shifts, you know, opportunities arise for folks to exploit those shifts because they're not well understood, they're not properly controlled, and it creates avenues for people to get into a customer's environment and steal data or do whatever damage they want to do. Um, so that's sort of counter to this budget problem. So I think there's going to be this interesting period of instability here where CISOs are being pushed in one direction and the reality of the world they operate in is going in another direction, um, which makes it a fascinating place to be an investor. Um, yeah. You know, no, Jonathan, like, um, yeah, go uh, yeah, go on. Sorry. Well, I, was, I was just thinking like, from my background in, in dealing with the Pentagon budget when we were doing cybersecurity planning and launching U.S. Cyber Command and investing in, you know, the Pentagon has a $40 billion IT budget or some probably more than that back then. And we were always trying to find efficiencies. And when you think about cybersecurity, it's like your security budget, they say, should be 10% of your IT budget, which is about right. And that's about what Cyber Command was. It was like 4 to $5 billion. I think it's probably gone up. And the way I think about testing and control validation is how much time are you spending actually making sure that what you're doing is working? And we had this cost assessment and program evaluation office in the Pentagon led by a, a brilliant woman, one of the smartest people I've ever met named Christine Fox, who in Top Gun, the character, uh, Kelly McGillis's character, was based on her in the first Top Gun. But she does these assessments. She's always saying, is it actually working? And in cybersecurity, there was no measure around that to say, are things actually working? Now, when she and I worked together during the, the it was the sequester in the defense budgets, so there was an automatic 8% that was being cut off the top. And the question was like, where can you find efficiencies? And what, in, in, for industry, for folks that are looking out at the, at the economic environment saying, I'm spending millions and millions of dollars, in some cases, tens of millions of dollars, if I'm a, a, mar a large financial institution on cybersecurity, is it actually working? And the data that we have is, no, it's not. Things aren't actually working. So if you add another 10% onto the 10%, so I guess that would be, I don't know, whatever, don't do math in public, right? Like uh, some portion, 10% of your cybersecurity budget in, into testing, you can actually elevate and save all the money that you would otherwise be pouring into a hole. And the, some of the data that we found is that like, there's a 47% increase in, in security operation team efficiency, 37% more effective SOC analysts, gain of 57% in red team staff. This kind of stuff is like, it just really opened my mind and my eyes to what could actually happen. And for the commercial sector, which hasn't done this kind of training vis-a-vis -vis the, the US military in the past, this is a new way of thinking. It's saying, look, if we're living in a stage of consistent conflict in cyberspace, then we need to achieve a level of combat readiness. And that's a, that's a mentality shift, I think. Jonathan Ryber, Marcus Bartram, thanks for joining me. Thanks for having us. Patrick, lovely to chat to you. We appreciate it. That was Jonathan Ryber of Attack IQ and Marcus Bartram from Telstra Ventures there. Big thanks to them for that. And big thanks to Attack IQ for being this week's sponsor. And that is it for this week's edition of Risky Business. I'll be back next week with more security news and analysis. But until then, I've been Patrick Gray. Thanks for listening.